Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. Pleasant afternoon and an early evening to everybody. Hope everybody's having a good time. Thanks for tuning into the Water Zone Show. I'm Rob Starr, along with our other great host, Mr. Chris Davey. Chris, how are you doing out in California? Uh, it's awesome here today. I am basking in the shades of autumn, as it were. So as we are now on the 23rd and a, and a day and a half, technically, into fall. Well, well I, see, I see you're glowing from sunlight coming through your window. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and uh, we're lucky to have it because I tell you, the smoke from the Central California fires has been drifting south because we've got that little high up in Arizona where you guys are that's sending the uh, the wind, Santa Ana winds from north to south. It's not a big Santa Ana, but we are getting, uh, we are tracking that smoke from the Central California fires. Still lots of fires and it's sure devastating and they seem to just go on forever and ever and ever and ever and and it's, uh, it's pretty harsh. So I hope everybody who was up in those areas can get out of their house and, and, and go for safety. And, you know, it's a shame they some of them lose their homes and, and everything they own. But, uh, you know, the only thing you can think that comes out of it is at least if they save their lives, that's, that's the most important thing. You know, material <clears throat> items can always can always be replaced. Yeah. Human life can't be. So uh, yeah, we, we, I agree. our hearts, our hearts some, to them. Yeah, there are some cherished treasures here in the state of California that are trying, that are uh, in the path of that fire and uh, Cal Fire is trying everything they can to protect them, speaking generally about the giant sequoias, uh, General Sherman Tree and those guys and trying to protect those. That fire is about to enter or has entered that area. Um, So, uh, you know, hats off to those guys and and, uh, just all we can do is just hope uh, that they're successful in their deterrent effort. Yeah, I saw some pictures of those trees, two to three hundred year old trees, and you know that's a shame. You know, they lived a long life, but you know they still deserve to, to stay around a lot longer. Anyway, we're going to bring in uh, one of our favorite people, Miss Chris Austin, who is the purveyor of Maven's Notebook, the all telling all everything about water in California and around the world. So, Chris Austin, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you doing, everybody? Awesome, Chris. Excellent. Yeah, yeah you, you forgot how's... to mention they're wrapping those trees in like those fire resistant blankets. I mean, they yeah. they really have gone to some extraordinary uh measures to save those those ancient sequoia trees, wrapping them in like it looks like foil, but you know, I I do believe there's there they are those fire blankets that many, many years ago I was required to buy for my kids to have in this little emergency pack at the, you know, elementary school. So, uh, yeah, it, it, I, I hope that it works, you know, fingers yeah, crossed. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So just remind our audience, you know, we're all remote because of the COVID situation. We haven't been in the studio about a year and a half, uh, and uh, so it's been it's been really tough trying to do the show. I mean, we've done a great job doing it. We have video, so now we can see each other, and that's a little better than not seeing anybody at all. 
And uh, but we're all spread out. You know, Chris is in uh, in, in uh, Southern California. You're up in Chico. I'm out in Arizona. And and uh, but we carry on. We we do what we got to do. But there's a lot of things happening in water. And you know, one of the things I had read in your publication this morning, how California is falling short on water conservation as the drought worsens. Maybe you can fill us in a little about about that, Chris. Yeah, it's it's uh, interesting, but perhaps not surprising. You know, the governor has called for uh, 50, everyone to conserve water like 15%, which is really hard to tell a bunch of people, you know, cut your water use 15%, because it's hard to understand what that means to you on a, on a daily basis. But... Um, you know, he, he called for this conservation, and surprise or no surprise, um, it, it really didn't happen. And, you know, the, the people that responded the most, you know, they, they put out a map that showed where in California who really saved water. And they get these numbers from the water agencies and water districts that deliver water. So they basically ask them, how much water did you deliver last month? You know, did you produce and deliver? So the numbers, I think, are pretty accurate for water use in the region. And it, it showed that the people in the North Coast region, which is the most northern part of California, like the Klamath and, and Eureka and far north, they actually uh, did a pretty good job of uh, saving water. Actually, they did the best in the state by saving 16%. Uh, but everybody else all over the state uh, didn't do nearly as well. Um, you know, and in some cases, uh, actually in possibly increased their water use. So, you know, it's, the governor put out this call, and it, it's voluntary. And, you know, I really think that the issue is not so much that people don't care about saving water, but that a lot of people are focused on other things, such as, you know, getting your kid out to school in the morning with a clean mask to wear at school. You know, I mean, yeah. sometimes water use is not the most important thing on your list. And, and, and unfortunately, I think the pandemic and people trying to deal with the effects of that, especially if you have a kid in school, uh, whether if they're going to school or they're here at home or whatever, I mean, there's just a lot for a household to manage. And so if you want them to start taking extreme measures like, you know, putting a bucket in your shower and watering your trees with that, I mean, I think that households at this moment are a bit overtaxed on other things. Uh, not that that excuses people. We really all need to be doing the best we can with our water use uh, because the reservoirs are really, really in bad shape. I, I mean, in some cases, the worst they've ever been. 
and there's a lot of concern about what happens if next year is dry. And all is all models are tending to show that it's likely going to be dry. So, you know, whatever we're experiencing now, if we think this is bad, if next the winter season is dry, next year this time it's going to be like really, really bad. So we're all hoping for a wet winter. Do you do you think when we went into the, the, the previous drought back when Governor Brown was here, and and people did a really good job at the water agencies and they, they most of them conserved up to twenty five percent. Do you think that number got greatly reduced from the last drought to this drought, where where stuff started creeping up now? Well, you know the the thing is, you know when the when we feel like we're in good water shape, people don't pay so much attention. Um, I actually think right now, and the reservoir levels and seem to support that, that we're actually in worse shape than we were in 2015. But I don't think that the public awareness is nearly at what level it needs to be, uh, in part because there's a lot of other things, you know, wildfires and coronavirus and other things on people's plates, other things they need to respond to. So it's really difficult to get this message across. But one of the big problems this year, or one of the big things that really threw water managers for a loop, to say, so to say, is that they expected a lot more water to flow into the reservoirs from the snowpack that was there on the mountain. And as it turned out, that water that they expected to melt based on historical projections, it it didn't show up in the reservoirs. It went other places. Some of it went directly from snow to the atmosphere in this process called sublimation, other other parts of it went just into the soil, which was so dry, it just soaked up the water. But the, the problem is that the water that they expected to show up in the reservoirs as a result of all their modeling did not show up. So that really throws into questions going forward, how much can you count on these models to tell you how much water is going to come into the reservoir and what happens next year if if it's dry, given that our reservoirs right now are probably in the worst shape in a lot of them that they've ever been in. I mean, they stopped mm. producing power at Oroville, and they've never done that. Uh, because the water got too low, they couldn't run the water through <laughs> the hydropower plants and hydropower is is really been suffering because of the drought and so you know we don't produce so much hydropower and now we're you know usually utilizing our natural gas plants more so you know everything's just kind of mixed up yeah 
Chris, let me ask a question. I'm going to throw a political twist on this a little bit after what Rob was saying and you just mentioned. I mean, this really is a complex issue, right? It doesn't look good um, for for uh, California for California water as the total if next year is dry, as you say. But there's a lot of complex issues um, involved in this. I mean, but I want to ask this question since we've got kind of this trifecta going, right, of drought and fires that we were talking about, and then kind of fill in Governor Newsom's, um, you know, his climate action bill that he signed uh, today, $15 billion or so, uh, a packet to, to, you know, all climate-related issues, protect vulnerable communities and, and, and uh, you know, and all that, all that stuff. It wasn't unexpected for him to sign this bill, was it? Uh, no, no. And I think a lot of uh, organizations and, you know, have been pushing for him to sign such a thing. And we really do need to be investing in these things because um, these have real impacts to all of us who live here in California and even beyond. The wildfires, um, the drought. You know, the drought affects food production, and California is the major food producer for the nation, not on, and not only the nation but the world. So when there's food production issues, you know, that has real ramifications, not only for our nation but also for abroad. And as much as we would like to say that, uh, you know, why are we using our water to export things? Uh, the unfortunate truth is that uh, the world, in, to a certain extent, has become uh, dependent on exports of food. There are a number of countries, I believe China being among them, that cannot grow the food within their own borders to support their population. So... It's important. I mean, you just can't dismiss exports because there are ramifications for that. So, you know, there's just a lot of things going on. And California's lack of water for food supply is a, is a very important issue, no doubt. It's a, yeah, it's a tough, yeah, it's a tough challenge for, for Governor Newsom or California, especially because, you know, we're not, you know, the, the old breadbasket term and the fact that, We've been the California has been probably the most uh, advanced state in in, uh, uh, in the nation for protecting sustainable agriculture, right? If you want, if you want to call it that. So all the stuff, all the wild wildfires and the drought, which by the way, drought and wildfire are inex, inexorably connected. Um, and, oh, and all of us need to believe that. Yeah. I I believe it for sure. I've seen the science. I've seen the data. And I believe that our leadership in the state of California also sees that and 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 believes it as well. Um, you know, it's just going to be interesting to see what form uh, of um, of projects and spending this fifteen billion dollar takes. Uh, you know, well, what what where's it going to go? <laughs> right? I don't I don't know that I have the insight yet, or or if or if anybody does, but it'll be an interesting uh, ride uh, just to be on. Well, one of the things you need to understand is, you know, he, he signed this, the, all these bills and that puts all these things in motion, but it doesn't mean that, you know, next month the money is rolling out for these projects. Yeah. 
They, yeah. You know, there's a whole process that needs to happen. And who they give these uh, programs to really uh, makes a difference. Because some agencies are really good. They understand how to administer such a program. I mean, basically what you do, I think Gover- Governor Newsom says, here's, you know, one $1.5 billion for wildfire and forest resilience. So what does that mean? The agencies in charge of that have to go and look at what the legislation that he actually signed, and then they have to turn that into some type of uh, proposal for people to, uh, you know, submit their projects for. And so you need language, and and you need you know a lot of you need the whole program set up so. The agency will go and look at the legislation and, and come up with the, the wording. They'll release that draft form for everyone to comment on, and then it comes back and they they have their now proposal. And so they release their proposal, and people, you know, groups and organizations that can submit their proposals to get that money, but it's that whole process takes about a year in general. So just because Newsom put his uh, signature on the bottom line doesn't mean that money is rolling out next month. And some agencies are much better at getting this money out the door uh, than others. Yeah, I I agree, right? It's going to be a while till, till this takes some sort of a form and we can see um, substantial uh, a project, you know, going through the California legislature and and um, you know these wildfire uh, wildfire issues or forest resilience uh, packages, all the things that are in there that we that we read about today in the press release, uh, until they get formed into something concrete that that that, that we can all watch and um, uh, and understand. It's not a flip of a switch, in other words, right? Oh, no, it takes time. And we we certainly want to see accountability. I mean, it's nice that they say what they're going to do with the money. And, yes, it's great that they're spending the money. But we want to know what's the results of it. What's the return on investment? Is it really happening and such? You know, that's that's an important thing. You know, also, also, Chris, one of of the other things that are are attacking California right now is all this toxic algae blooms that they're finding throughout throughout California. And and where are we with that? What's happening in, in that area? Well, you know, toxic algae blooms are, they affect us here and they're affecting everyone basically all over, uh, everywhere right now. It's a global problem, I think you could really say. And there's a lot of researchers going to work and looking at how, you know, how these uh, toxic algae blooms can be addressed when they happen. How can they be prevented? The biggest challenge is that um, the whole root of the algae problem is that we have too too many nutrients uh, in our waterways, uh, and these are new. You know, nutrients sounds like a good thing, right? You say you put nutrients in the water. Well, like we take vitamins, right? So you think that should sound good. 
But in a natural ecosystem, adding a whole bunch of nutrients doesn't is is not a good thing, and it causes some organism to over overdo it. And the problem that we have is over a hundred years, over one hundred fifty years, uh, there's nutrients that have just built up in the river system, and they are in the sediment. They're kind of just sort of lack of a better word, baked into the ecosystem. And what this happens with the warmer temperatures and the lower water flows is that you you get a lot of toxic algae. Um, and it's bad for drinking water systems. It is bad for, I mean, you know, swimmers and pets. And there's this whole story, very fascinating story about a family that was hiking in the Stanislaus Forest area, I believe, and uh, they just died without, and and they're still looking for an explanation, and for, for whatever reason, toxic algae is on the list of things that could have potentially killed them. Now... We're talking there was a dad, a mom, a baby, and a dog that were all found dead on the trail within a very small, like within a quarter mile of each other. And it's hard for me to understand how, I mean, the the dog and the baby would be overcome by something, but the adults should, it, it seems to me there would be more, they they would have more stamina. They could just, you know, move out of the area. But a very fascinating story, <laughs> uh, very unexplained. And they're looking at toxic algae. It's never been, you know, I don't think, I haven't really heard of human death being attributed to toxic algae, really, ever as I yeah. kind of flip well, back through my mind. Well, it's been, it's been a while. They, yeah. still haven't come out, they still haven't come out with the reason for that, and that was you know, something interesting, no. and I was interested you know, when you first said it to, to do that. And one last thing here, because we've got a couple more minutes left. Um, I know Stanford University Research is looking into how they can lower the high cost of desalination. And I, and I read some other neat articles that you had about, about some company taking wastewater and uh, removing the hydrogen from it, from the water, using that for energy and, and so forth. So I think there's a lot of science that can happen um, in technology. What, what's, what, what's your insight on, on that from Stanford? Well, uh, you know, most definitely people are looking into these issues, and there's a lot of research. The problem with desalination is that it takes a lot of energy, a lot of, and, and there have been a lot of products developed to address that, sort of get that energy back and put it somewhere. But it ta- it does take a lot of energy, meaning electricity or whatever, to produce the desalinated water. Uh, you get a brine from that desalinated water that then has to be disposed of. So there's a lot of things, you know, there's, there's many issues to desalination. Uh, just those two are the main ones. And 
uh, and so certainly there's a lot of research looking at what can be done. We used to think of, uh, you know, output from uh, wastewater treatment plants as just something to be thrown away. Now we see it as a resource. So there's yeah. a lot of people similarly saying, you know, with this, with the brine that you release from a desalination plant, what can we do with that? Uh, but the Stanford research is looking at the membranes, which is a really important part of the desalination process, and they're looking to see how they can make them more efficient, uh, which yeah. is, you know, there's, there's so many aspects to the process that, uh, you know, it, it's important to be looking at all aspects. And uh, Stanford, as well as UCLA, are looking at those uh, those technologies. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's going to be a big a big deal coming up in the next couple of years because uh, you know we do need these out. It, it is expensive, uh, but I, I I leave it to human ingenuity to come up with uh, solutions for that. And I, I think I truly believe it's going to happen. It may not happen this year or next year, but I believe down the road it, it certainly will happen. Well, Chris, we're coming up against our commercial break. We do appreciate you coming on the show and telling us what's going on. Uh, Chris and I, like I said, we, we get your, your stuff every single, your messages every single day. We open the computer and we see your, your Maven's notebook and it gives us all the data that we need to go out and have a great day. Uh, but for our listeners, please go to www.mavensnotebook.com, become a subscriber. You can also become a sponsor. That's a great way to get all the background information of things that are happening uh, in water in California and around, around the country where you won't see a lot about any newspapers. So, uh, please do that. Chris, thank you very much, and uh, you have a great, safe week, and we will talk to you next week. All right. Good evening, everybody. Have a great week, Chris. You too. All right. We're, all right, we're going to come back in uh, just a few moments. We're going to take a little commercial break, and we have a great featured guest for us. So stick around for the second half of The Water Zone. We'll be right back. This is 1050 AM KCAA Loma Linda and 106.5 FM Yukaipa. Time to take a water break and talk some water. Irrigation. such a refreshing topic. As more and more markets face water restrictions, your customers may be hungry or should I say thirsty for water saving products. For new installations, add options like drip irrigation, controllers that respond to weather data, pressure regulating heads or heads with check valves. They all provide easy ways to differentiate your bids and win more jobs. Or for an extra stream of revenue, offer existing customers upgrades like high efficiency nozzles, rotary nozzles, or Wi-Fi based controllers. Because when you help your customers save water, you make a world of difference for the earth and your bottom line at the same time. We'll drink to that. Are you presently part of the irrigation industry as a worker or business owner? Do you want to learn how you and your staff can boost your knowledge and productivity? Then you should check out Irrigator Technical Training School. Irrigator Tech is the leading source of quality instruction serving all facets of the irrigation industry. 
Their courses provide a basic, easy-to-understand approach that raises the skill level, competency, and professionalism of landscape and irrigation personnel through practical education and services. Irrigator Tech combines classroom and real-life hands-on training, leading to a well-recognized certification that both customers and employers demand. Irrigator Tech specialized courses can help you quickly become a certified irrigation auditor or a certified installer, repair, maintenance, or backflow technician. Courses also include certificates in smart water application or becoming a certified tree worker. Most importantly, all certifications are state recognized and Irrigator Tech offers annual renewal classes to help keep your certification up to date. So whether you work in California, Washington, Oregon, Nevada, or Arizona, there's an Irrigator Tech class near you. For more information on how to jumpstart your career, call Irrigator Tech toll-free 866-614-1755 or visit them on the web at irrigatortech.com. That's toll-free 866-614-1755 and on the web at irrigatortech.com. K C A. Hey. All right, thanks for the, coming back to the second half of the Water Zone Show with Robin Fish, and we're glad to have you all here. Uh, Fish and I are very excited. We have an excellent guest. And speaking of excellent, this person has won the 2020 uh, 21. Uh, award from the Irrigation Association as the in, in Excellence in Education. And this person is the Associate Professor of Fresno uh, State University and an Assistant Director of Research at the Center for Irrigation Technology, also at uh, Fresno State. So we're very proud to have this person. And I love her accent, and she's from France, I have to say that. And so bonsoir, and this is Dr. Castle. So Castle, Florence Castle. Say hello to everybody. Yes, uh, hi everyone. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Rob, for this introduction, and thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, uh, it's, I, yeah, it's a pleasure for us. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're perfect. I love that. And uh, you know, something I didn't tell you when we talked a week. My mom, my mother's name was Florence as well. So that's oh, a yeah. beautiful name. Yeah. Well, so um, thank, thank you for thank you for coming in. You know, one of, one of the things that we always start off the conversation with is, how did you get into the, the business that you're doing with water? What what made you pick that as a career? Well, actually, it didn't start right away with water. Um, I kind of, I, I come from a, a family that has been involved in agriculture for generations, actually, in France. And so I have always been uh, around water. And where I lived in France, we didn't have any irrigation. We didn't need water, we have plenty of water, but um, I was already interested in, in crop production specifically, so the the way it happened is that uh, I knew that I always wanted to pursue a career uh, in uh, in agriculture, so after high school, I enrolled in an ag engineering school, and I, I got my BS and MS uh, from France, and during that time, I, I had the opportunity to participate in an exchange program, so I spent one semester in the U.S., and during that time, so uh, it was in the in the western part in, in Wyoming actually, and so I met several contacts with the uh, plant and soil science faculty, and then later on was offered uh, an assistantship to start a PhD. And the topic of the PhD was um, uh, focused on uh, you know adoption of drip irrigation for row crops. 
this was my first kind of uh, initiation into irrigation. And this is how I got involved in irrigation. And this has been my, my career since then. I haven't looked back. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so this is how I got involved in, in irrigation. And then after that, of course, uh, after I got my PhD, when I started looking for a job, I got this position uh, as a soil and water scientist with the Center for Irrigation Technology uh, at Fresno State. And so this was actually my my first job uh, at CIT. And I, I was mostly involved in the resource division of CIT. And so, but I have been really lucky that I have had uh, David Zardowski, who at the time was the director of the center, uh, as my mentor. So we really, uh, he had a really uh, kind of great tenure during his uh, time at CIT, and the center really blossomed at that time. And we started conducting a lot of um, field trials on irrigation scheduling, water use efficiency, um, and the use of new technologies and, and practices. So. This is really how it all started, <laughs> and huh? here I am oh, now. So you, so, so we can say you really jumped in and got your feet wet in this industry. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, Doctor Doctor Patel, this is Chris. Welcome to the show, and first, congratulations on your uh, excellent education uh, award. Um, oh, do you, thank you do so you much. Mind, you're welcome. Do you mind, Doctor Cassell, if we just call you Florence? We're kind of, we're, we're, oh, yeah, we're sort of do. You know, do. Much, yeah. <laughs> good because we're much less kind of much less formal on the. Um, on yeah. the we're, we're friends. We're friends now. Oh yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so welcome, welcome to the show. Uh, both Rob and I in, in, in doing the research, and I know Rob talked to you, and I apologize I wasn't available on that call when you talk, when, when you talked to Rob. Um, but two two things really came to mind for me, uh, Florence, and the first one is just how much of of, uh, uh, of a passion for education that um, that came through to me, at least in reading the, the notes and the conversation uh, uh, I had with um, with Rob about about uh, your talk on the phone. So so maybe the the best part um, of of the conversation that we can start with is just looking at how how much of an effect that education has. Uh, uh, on your life, I know it's a passion for you, um, and in in many aspects. So maybe you can start by telling our listeners just what kind of what type of classes, what's the curriculum that uh, that you're involved in, uh, with at uh, Cal State Fresno. Uh, sure. So yeah, so at uh, at Fresno State, so I I teach uh, in the department of uh, plant science, which is under the College of uh, Agricultural uh, Sciences. And so I teach both undergrad and uh, graduate uh, courses, and uh, primarily on uh, so irrigation and water management. So irrigation scheduling, irrigation system design, irrigation maintenance. Um, I also have a lower division course on uh, agricultural water, where I actually cover like water regulation, the water code, you know, the water agencies in California, all the water delivery systems, and the water rights. And I also have a, a grad class, is a, a seminar uh, that's called uh, Agricultural Water Issues, and we discuss all type of issues related to um, in in California and around the world. So what I try to do in the in the class is really uh, because I I get students who are freshmen up to students who are uh, in the master's program. So 
uh, when students start, uh, they really um, don't have much idea of the importance of water in crop production and uh, irrigation, unless they, they are from a, a, an ag background. So I, I yeah. have to give yeah. them a lot of you know background and information and try to show them the importance of uh, of water. This is why in that lower division class, I, I have I talk a lot about all this the water agencies, the water issues in California, and so on, trying to set the Kind of the stage, um, and, and then what I what, so my my goal, like I said, uh, the students don't have too much like idea of the importance of water, and they also don't know too much about what we have around. Like even at at Fresno State, we have the Center for Irrigation Technology. We have a large farm. So what I do, I try to expose students to to the centers. We also have a lot of uh, startup companies, for example, or companies uh, that are developing new products, uh, irrigation companies. Uh, and so I try to um, introduce students uh, to the professional in the industry, and so they get more interest. You know, so it's really kind of a, right. a gradual process. Yeah. Right. Well, well, Rob. Before you go on to the next question, first I want to say I apologize, Florence, for 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 saying uh, Cal State Fresno. Uh, it's Fresno State. Um, myself, I'm a I'm a oh. I'm a Cal Poly uh, graduate, <laughs> so I'm partial to the. <laughs> to the Cal State uh, 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 school, but um, you know, <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that out there because I, I felt so bad right after making that uh, making that uh, uh, error. But hey, do you do you see when these students come to you? You know, you kind of talked a little bit about some of them have a little predisposition to uh, to how important water is. But I, I said really in your answer that that you really have an interest in in making sure that these students are pursuing this career for the right reasons, right? Not not just to get a sheepskin or a degree, but do it because you, you want them you want them uh, to have water as a passion of theirs as well. Is, is that what I'm reading, sensing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so so what I um, what I do a lot of our students, you know, they are they like hands on experience, for example. Um, so this is also something that I uh, introduced uh, in uh, in uh, in my classes, but showing them, okay, water is the first limited factor in crop production. Uh, so they really have to understand that uh, and experience that. So um, so in a, in addition to really just teaching the course materials, you know, so I kind of take students out in the field, have them meet with uh, professionals, and I. Um, have them take advantage of some of the opportunities. So, for example, we are going to have the ACTEC Day uh, at CIT at the end of October. So I'm just letting all the students know, inviting them to go. And then also a lot of students actually now want to volunteer to help during the, that time. They want to be involved with CIT. Uh, the same way for the, um, the there is a, this program, educational program, the um, uh, E3 Learner Program with the Irrigation Association. Uh, that's that's a fantastic program for the students. So I just encourage all of them to to apply to to this program so that they they can be involved with the um, industry, you know, and so show them the importance of water. And over the years, I, I have seen a change. When I started, I started teaching uh, eight years ago, and at the time, I I had maybe like sometimes only 10 students in some of my elective classes because not, of, not all of my classes are required for the major. So the upper division are elective. So I didn't have that many students. So what, uh, and, 
So over time, I really started like, uh, I mean, uh, showing students the, the importance of, of water and also, I mean, taking interest in different aspects of the, the teaching, you know, education, not just giving a lecture. So like I said, uh, hands-on. So we go in the field a lot. We have a big farm on campus. So we go in the field. We do some maintenance on the irrigation system. We do some distribution in uh, uniformity tests. We go to the CIT testing lab and we do uh, some waiting pattern tests, friction losses tests, you know. So the students really enjoy that and they start taking interest. And then then they, they take the next next class, you know, the upper division where they, they get a little bit more advanced knowledge. Uh, and then when they get some opportunities to attend some of these educational programs, go to conferences. So some of the students are actually going to go to the IA show. So they get more involved and then... In some of the cases, they actually continue and do a, a master's in irrigation. I mean, on the topic of irrigation, we, we don't really have, like, we just have a plant science degree, but they did choose an option related to a project related to irrigation, which is really, really great. So now it has improved in a lot of my upper division classes. I have more students. Most of the classes are full now. And um, I, I see a lot more interest uh, in, in irrigation over and water in general. So it, 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 it has been great to see that evolution. Well, one thing, one thing I, I know you're, you're commended upon is how you uh, aspire uh, women uh, to pursue the career. I know Chris and I, I think we're a little older than you are. <laughs> in fact, I know that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we, 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 we see what we call the gray wave in the water and in the water industry, both for manufacturers and the water agencies and such and a lot of people are getting to the point where they're retiring and i'm you know i have this term i call wow and i and that's for me it stands for women of water and i see today there's so many more females entering that industry and i think that's great there's plenty of opportunities for people and that's something that you're commended upon i know part of that was uh consideration for your uh, excellence in education because you do promote that that's a good thing but but going back to a little yeah. technical thing i know your view on the importance of water in california but but i, I know you you came from an agriculture world so um your focus really is 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 agriculture so how do you comment on on where you see the importance of of, of, of using water efficient in agriculture how, do, how does that step up in, in today and in the future well, I well, really, of course, water is, is crucial for our state. No, we are the largest and most diverse economy in the in the world, and we um, we lead the production in agriculture in the country. We are major manufacturing center, and uh, so our, we also have a huge population. And our economy overall relies heavily on natural resources and primarily on 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 water, and. So of course, yeah, water is like really important for for our state and our economy, and I I think that a, a large part also of this uh, this expansion and the, the diversity uh, in our economy has been to also to the you know this in extensive network of delivery system that we have developed in the state to convey water. So that's kind of remarkable in the world. Now there is a lot of competition uh, for water. And so we have to satisfy all the demand, the urban demand, the ag demand, and the environmental demand. Uh, so water is, is like really crucial, and we have to 
when you, we are at a point now when we are facing uh, uh, these periods, uh, more uh, recurrent periods of drought, where we have to really try to kind of all sit down and see, okay, we have to try to use water more sustainably, more responsibly, and, you know, try to, everybody will have to make a little bit of concession. Uh, but definitely for our economy to keep thriving, uh, water is a key, you know, key element. Uh, well, um, uh, yeah, so Rob, let me ask a question, kind of switch gears a bit, kind of uh, looking at the research you do, Florence, because I know part of the, uh, the bio that we read and, and the information that we read from the Irrigation uh, Association focuses a lot on, on your uh, efforts in, in research. So maybe um, we can give our listeners a little bit of glimpse into, uh, you know, what, what, your as- what your aspects of your research um, are you involved in right now, especially as it, re- as it relates to uh, water conservation, Florence. Is that, a, is that an easy enough question for you? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. So yeah, well, my my research really has uh, focused on uh, studies that uh, look at optimizing overall is optimizing water use efficiency. So by implementing various practices, so using various technologies that overall conserve water, and that will at the same time try to minimize the the leaching of uh, nutrients and contaminants uh, in the in the groundwater. Remember earlier, the, before I, I came in the show, you're talking about uh, nutrients. Um, so, yeah, we need nutrients for crop growth, but we don't want to apply too much at the same time, and we have to be mindful of the uh, contamination of the groundwater, which we are using, actually, for other purposes later on. So this is the, the, the main focus of my research. So there are, like, several, um, uh, let's say, branches of uh, let's say studies that I, uh, that I, I have followed. Um, one has been to look at uh, the implementation of low uh, or low volume practices or deficit irrigation practices. Um, so we look at overall, it's like really relatively basic, like can we convert from, let's say, furrow irrigation to drip irrigation or even deficit certain crops without affecting the yield and the quality of our crop. And, and we found that in most of the studies that if you deficit by 10%, uh, up to sometimes 20%, you can still maintain a similar yield statistically and uh, maintain similar quality of your of your crop. Um, and yeah. another study we are doing is like looking at other types of crops. You know, like of course we haven't we have done a few studies recently on sorghum, and I know it's not really a kind of an attractive crop. Uh, it hasn't gotten much attention in the U.S., but it is grown a lot in other parts of the world. In, arid part of the world, and it is known for its high tolerance to water stress and salinity. So we are trying to see, okay, could we in certain in certain area or during period of uh, intensive drought, uh, convert some of our corn acreage into sorghum? Um, so these are some of the studies that I've been looking at. We also look at uh, irrigation scheduling is also a, a big uh, component of my of my research. I'm looking at uh, developing a new crop coefficients um, that can be used for irrigation scheduling because most of the crop coefficients that we have currently were developed like decades ago, and they were um, developed under practices and irrigation systems that are very different uh, from what we have today. So I'm trying to also conduct some studies to update some of those uh, crop coefficients. 
And um, a third part of my research has been also to look at uh, the application of low-quality water, so either ag drainage water, or we also have had a, a recent project on food processing water and uh, oil field water. Because, um, you know, uh, we also, in, like in Kern County, they have uh, they produce a, a lot of like uh, water from oil extraction. And so those, those, uh, this type of water are also blended with, uh, uh, let's say, fresh water, and they are used to irrigate crops. So what would be the long-term effect on, the, uh, on uh, applying this type of water on the soil and uh, in the crop too? Yeah. Right, and of course, all those, all those research focuses you mentioned become even that much more important, uh, Florence, if, you, if, if I think you'll agree with me, especially now in, in times of uh, a drought periods, right? Yeah, sure. So everything we are trying to do is try to say, how can we conserve water? This is kind of the, 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 the main goal. No? Can we try to achieve? So here we don't necessarily want, you know, for example, with drip, we can increase yield. So this has been proven. So now we can try to say, since we have a limited water supply, well, let's see, can we have a compromise? No? Try to uh, have maybe use a little bit less water and get the same yield. So we, we may not increase our yield, but at least uh, we get uh, similar yield or consistent yield and use less water. So that's kind of a little bit the philosophy, trying to conserve water as much as possible. And of, of course, always look at the, the environmental part in the sense that we don't want to over-apply water because if you over-apply water, then you, you um, waste water and you waste nutrients too. So when you apply fertilizer or pesticide, you don't want to over-apply either. Uh, and leads mm-hmm. us in the in the groundwater. Yeah. I know one of your your uh, factory uh, cohorts, uh, Angelo Mazzari, did a did a project where they uh, included air injectors with drip, and that helped uh, to uh, to make the soil more healthy. I mean, there's so many things, and I was going to say also in Israel, uh, there's been a lot of studies with salinity and and growing crops with uh, heavily salted uh, water. And and I know that's that's part of irrigation studies and, and that, but it's also biology and things. I, I think there's going to be so many new technologies coming up because there's going to be a shortage of water. There's going to be a shortage of food with with the with the growth of, of the world of population. Uh, we got to find better ways and, and, and more effective ways to, to grow grow food. And uh, obviously, without water, you can't do that. And, and you know, everybody's going yeah. for this uh, the green. You know, that's the famous word, you know, we all want to be green. Well, you can't be green unless you have blue, <laughs> which we call the water. So exactly. how, how do you, yeah. So how, how do you see that? And, and, and maybe you can tell us a little bit on, on what uh, uh, Angelo did uh, uh, in his project, because that was pretty interesting. It, you know, I, I guess it, uh, it increases the yield results. Yeah. So this is, um, yeah, a, a long-term uh study that uh, we did. Actually, uh, one of my colleagues was the, the lead on that in, in plant science, Dr. Brewer, who so works a lot with uh, Angelo. And, uh, yeah, so um, what the, the, the injectors that uh, Angelo has, so these, those, are, those are injectors that are placed like along the irrigation line, like a, well, so for a subsurface drip system, and they operate by suction. So they basically suck uh, air from the atmosphere and they mix the air with the, with the water along the line, and those create like micro bubbles, 
and and later on when the water is applied in the in the in the steel, so that kind of aerates the the root zone and um, that kind of reduces the anoxic uh, environment. And uh, with that, then we saw that consistently we have done studies that uh, have shown that the yield are increased by. I mean, it can range from 10 to 20%. depends on the crop. Sometimes it goes even higher for crops like cantaloupe. But yeah, this is really mm. one, I mean, let's say, relatively uh, simple uh, practice, but that's really, really efficient. Uh, and uh, it, it, has, it has been shown to increase yield consistently. Yeah. If I, if I wanted to get a copy of that study, do I just contact uh, the CIT and see if I can obtain one? Uh, yes, I'm very yes, interested yes, in that. Yes. Okay. Well, we got about yes, one, one or two more minutes. And I'm going to let Chris ask uh, the last question on, uh, on, on the docket here. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's not a problem. It's an easy one for me because in, in our day jobs, right, we go, we've gone a long time talking with uh, Ed Norm and Brett Meekham and Kameen, who's up, up there now. We have a great relationship with them. Um, what yes. do you do essentially for the CIT? Well, for the for CIC, well, I, I I conduct so I kind of organize all the the research programs, kind of uh, coordinate all the let's say the looking for funding opportunities and then trying to get uh, grants and uh, looking for all the resources. So I have like technicians and we try to make sure that uh, everybody has the, the resources to conduct the research and look at like new new products, new practices that we can test and also we work very closely with the with the industry uh, and uh, a lot of uh, companies come to test their their products so and it's not only like uh, irrigation type product but it can be like you know let's say we have had people showing surfactants or any uh, also sensor we work a lot with companies that develop new sensors so uh, now we are moving more into like plant sensors so um, this is kind of the next uh, next generation of technology. We, we look at uh, some some resources invo- involved in uh, looking at drones. Now drones for irrigation, it's, uh, it's a little bit not. Uh, we are not there yet for irrigation. Uh, we are doing it for like looking at the uh, crop growth and crop leaders and for irrigation. It's like a little bit. Well, we're, we're, we're up against we're up against our NBC News hour. We got to say thank you very much for joining. And we got to go to NBC News at uh, seven. So thank you very much. We appreciate it, Doctor. And uh, hopefully we'll get to meet you at, uh, at the event. Uh,